Father, what a joy and a delight it is to come together and be with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to share what you have revealed to us through your written word and what a privilege it is to even have your written word. What joy and delight it brings my heart and the way that it approves and convicts me and encourages me. I don't, I don't know what I would do without it. But yet, how often does my heart want to stray from it? Father, it is so easy to sing those songs about how much we, we long to come into your courts and we long to praise you. And yet, how familiar that old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. And we certainly see that played out in, in the book of Judges. But more importantly, we often see it played out in our own lives. And so I pray as we go through this study, Father, that it would just strengthen us, that it would ground us and help us to put deeper roots not only into your word, but into our relationship with you, that those moments of wandering, those periods of wandering would be shorter and fewer, and that we would truly seek to glorify you in every arena of our lives. We commit this time to you now, Lord, as always, pour out your Holy Spirit in here. Jim and I and Ryan and Brenda were just, were just your instruments. And we're, we're available and we're willing, and we just pray that it would be your word speaking through us in a mighty, powerful way. In your son's most precious name, amen. Okay, we got all of our historical background last week. I hope that was very profitable to you. I did get some feedback from a couple of you saying that really helped me to put some things into perspective of how it all plays out. Um, yeah, can somebody close that back door? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the screaming. And, and if we start hearing the whatever clarinet horn going, we'll need to close the other door. Um, the sounds of children. How what a wonderful, wonderful sound. Okay, pull out your pull out. For homework, you'll kind of want in front of you your questions, although I may not go directly by them one by one, and you'll also want your observation worksheets, and I hope you're seeing value in doing those. If you're not, keep at it. You will. I promise that you will. So we had our historical background last week, and we ha saw how important it was the promises that were made all the way back to the time of Abram, when God appeared to him in the land of Ur and said, Abram, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you, and I am going to make your name great. I, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, and I am going to give you and your descendants this land. And he passed that promise. He made a covenant with him. He reiterated that covenant with his son Isaac and with Isaac's son Jacob. And we saw how he honored that covenant. He remembered the covenant he had made and the promises that he had made when Israel is in bondage under the Egyptians and they are being oppressed and enslaved. And with a mighty outstretched arm, he delivers them through those, those mighty acts of the ten plagues and brings them out victoriously and with many possessions and gets them ready to go into this promised land that has been promised to them for over 400 years. Of course, we know that they sin and they get stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. That generation dies. Moses dies. Joshua, a great uh, military leader, leads them into the promised land. 
And if you read Joshua, you see a book full of conquest and victory as Joshua leads the Israelites in to take possession of the land that God said, you will have this land. And then we come to Judges. Very first verse, Judges 1.1, after Joshua died. God's great leaders do die. They die. And yet God continues his work, and God continues to be faithful to his people and to his covenant promises. And that's what we're going to see in Judges. So with that prep background, let's, let's dig in. You were asked to look, to make observations, and to pay attention to key repeated words and phrases. What did you see? What were some repeated words or phrases that you saw in Judges, just Judges 1? Let's just focus on Judges 1. Okay, the name of the Lord. You mean just the name, just Lord? Just Lord. Okay. That's what I thought you meant. And I started writing the other. Okay. We see Lord in there repeatedly, don't we? Okay. What else? Okay. Did not drive them out. As you start going down those first verses, when, when they inquire of the Lord, don't they? Who shall go up? And the Lord says, Judah shall go up. Did you notice as, we, as those first accounts are happening of Judah and Simeon going up, did you notice some of the verbs used? Did anybody pick up on this? Just kind of skim down a little bit. And starting in verse 4. What do you see? What? There was a lot of that, which was interesting. They went up and they went down, they went up, they went down. But as they're going up and as they're going down, what are they doing? Barbara, yeah. What'd you say? Okay, so you see um, you see that word they defeated? Who'd they defeat? Yeah, they're defeating the Canaanites. What other verbs similar to defeated? They would be synonymous with that, do you see? Scan through there and look. Is this, they fought? What else? They fought. They captured. Scott, was that you? Into their hand. They were given. Do you see some more? Okay, they went against. Pursued. Patty, did I hear you say took possession? They took possession. They drove out. Okay, hang on to that one. <laughs> I know, that's brutal, isn't it? I'm not going to write that one on there. Hang on to that. Okay. But do you see these things? They inquire to the Lord who shall go up. And he says Judah. Judah kind of makes a little arrangement with Simeon, which we can talk about in a minute. 
and but yet you see repeatedly these battles, this military, this is like a military report here in chapter one, where they go up and they've defeated and they fought and they've captured and they've driven them out and they've taken possession and the Lord puts them into their hand. So if I could describe what's happening here in, in a word or two, how, how would you describe it? How would you describe what's happening here? Conquest, yes. So we see here the conquest occurring. And is that what's supposed to be happening? Yeah, because God had said earlier, remember we saw that last week, he had told them, be strong and be courageous. And why could they be strong and courageous? I am with you. They may be mightier than you. They may be bigger than you. They may be more than you. But I am with you. Be strong and courageous. Because I am with you, victory is assured. You will be able to drive them out. If you trust me, you will be able to drive them out. Other thoughts? Okay. We see them at this point really seeking the Lord and being obedient to him. Now, what would be a first hint that things might not be going as planned? What did it say in verse 19? Okay, so first kind of hint is could not drive out because there's chariots. Should they have been able to drive those out with the chariots? Yes. Ha has that happened before? Have they been victorious over chariots before? Egypt. What did God do? Egyptians pursued them in chariots. He dried up the Red Sea. They got through. The Red Sea came and, and drowned them all. Yes. And there is a verse in Deuteronomy. I had it written down, and now I can't find it, and I didn't have time to go back and find it. So if someone can, you uh, can look it up. But where he, he says, he says, you will even be able to drive out those who have chariots. So you will have success over these people. Okay, before that, Brenda, I would say even before that, there's a hint that things are not as seeking of the Lord and as much a victorious, uh, victorious a conquest as it should be. Before that. No, it's the cutting off of the big toe and the thumb. What are they doing? That's why I said, hold that, Scott. So they, they capture this king, this Canaanite king, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. First of all, why do they even do that? Can't hold a spear, you can't hold a knife, he can't come and attack them, it's kind of hard to walk without a big toe. It's, dis it's, it's disabling him. And it's what else, Phyllis? What did you just say? He had done it to 70 kings before them because what does he even recognize in this? He's being repaid. He's, he's receiving retribution for the things that he has done to other people. Now, 
think back last week, wh why is this a hint right here that maybe the seeking of the Lord and the full victorious conquest is starting to go south? Because they let him live. What were they supposed to have done? Kill him. Do you remember our whole discussion at the end last week when we were discussing how, how do we reconcile the fact that God said go in and kill everything that breathes within the boundaries of this land? So they let him live. And they did. Here's the thing. They did to him what the Canaanites did to their king and to other kings. So they're acting like Canaanites. They're not acting like God's own possession. Can you all see that? Okay, so there's the first hint that things aren't quite going right. And remember, I, I'm seeing chapter 1 as kind of their report of our military success or what we've been able to accomplish. Okay, let's go to the... Okay. That's what I just said. Yeah, they, yes, they, sh that's okay. Uh, while you were on vacation, <laughs> they were supposed to kill him because they were clearly commanded to kill everything that breathed within the boundaries of the land that God had promised them. And what they were doing, Marilyn, was acting like Canaanites. They were doing what Canaanites would do because that's what they would do. This king even tells us that when he says, I've done this, and I'm getting retribution for what I have done. So no, they should have killed him. So, yeah. Okay, someone brought up Caleb and him saying, whoever goes and captures this, I'll give him, give him my daughter. So you're saying you think that that was an indication of their disobedience? Does anybody else see it that way? Do what, Marilyn? Well, I don't, I don't see it like you do, okay? I see this, okay, and I can understand that. Here's what I see in this, in this particular account. I see a very positive thing here in that this, this daughter of his however you say her name, Akshaw, what do you see her do? I see her as really kind of a noble woman. She asks for a blessing. And what else does she ask for? She asks for the best of the land. Yes, for the spring. What does she see? Why is she asking for these things? What does she see? What did we learn last week about the land? It is a gift from God. It is his promised inheritance to him. It's not just prime real estate. This is something he's promised to him. Do you, what I see in her 
And if someone wants to disagree, that I mean, please feel free to do so. But what I see in her is here is a woman of faith that says, give me a blessing, encourages her new husband to do likewise. Go and ask dad for this. Because you know what? This is God's blessed land. And we, and we can possess it. And we can have a piece of it. I think she's showing great faith in doing that. I don't see anything wrong with, with Caleb saying, whoever goes up gets, you know, you go up and you're victorious with this and you can have my daughter in marriage. Okay. Jim, do you disagree with that or no? Okay. So I think this is a bright ray of hope right here in the midst of some things beginning to go south. Because what's the next incident that you begin to see? In the midst of, because right after that, you do see them having some, some victories. You see in verse 17, they defeated the Canaanites and, and that inhabited Zephah and devoted it to, construct, to destruction. They did the right thing there. Uh, in verse 19, the Lord was with Judah. He took possession of the hill country, a little bit going south, but he couldn't drive out the inhabitants because they had chariots of iron. Now look at the end of the chapter, and there's a story there of um, the people of Benjamin, and what do they do? They didn't drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. They went up to Bethel, and what did they do in Bethel? What did they do? Um, we are on chapter 1. Look starting in verse 22. Look, look at verse 22. When they go up, the house of Joseph, excuse me, not Benjamin, the house of Joseph goes up to Bethel. How do they take Bethel? Was he? He was with them, but what do they do? Spies. They send spies. They, and they get a spy, don't they? From Bethel. Once they take Bethel, what do they let the spy do? What does he do? Did you notice that? Look at what he does. He builds the same city, just a little bit over. Now, what's wrong with that? Hmm? He's a Canaanite. What are they supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be destroying them. They're supposed to be devoting every living thing to destruction. They're supposed to be driving them out, not letting them have possession of the land not using them to, here's my way in here, but in conquering this city, well, I just let them go over here and build another one in a different place. And not only that, we even named it the same thing. Yes, you see what I'm saying? The, that's why I see the, these, all of these details become, um, they unlock what's happening here. Don't, don't skim by them in the narrative. Don't skim by the things like they cut off the thumbs and the toes. Ask, why did he do that? Was there anything wrong with that? Should they have done something else? Was there anything wrong with getting the spy to get away in to attack? 
And then the spy goes and just sets up another city, exactly like the one they just destroyed. Is this in keeping with everything God has been telling them all along? And the answer is no. It is not in keeping with everything that I've been telling you to do all along. Okay, look how it continues on as they as the tone switches. Because in the beginning, that's your second question in your homework. How does the tone switch from the beginning of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 1? Because in the beginning, we have up here these things that we've put. They are seeking the Lord. We are seeing conquest and defeat and victory in the battles and possession of the land with just a couple of hints of some things not quite right. And that is the Canaanite king and the Bethel spy and the chariots. But beginning in the second half of chapter 1, what begins to start coming out over and over and over? Say it. They did not drive them out. We start seeing a listing of all these tribes, don't we? Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Nephtali, Dan. Repeatedly, they did not drive them out. They did not drive them out. They did not drive them out. What else did they not do? What else did they do? They made them forced labor. What does that tell you? That phrase right there tells us several things. What does it tell you about the strength of Israel? If they were able to make them forced labor, they were able to kill them. They had the upper hand, didn't they? If they were able to make them forced labor, they were, they were capable of killing them. So what does that tell me about their spiritual condition? It's what, Tony? It's disobedient. So we're beginning to see disobedience here. Whereas over here, we saw obedience. Okay? That was not what they were supposed to have done. Again, isn't that what the Canaanites would have done? So, so we see them being disobedient. We see a lack of faith in God in that they're not driving them out. They have an inability to do it or just an unwillingness to do it. And we see them taking on more and more the characteristic of the Canaanites and doing what the Canaanites would do. So we see them becoming like Canaan, like the Canaanites. Versus what are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be Israelites, God's people, God's own possession, a special people, a unique people, a kingdom of priests, a holy priesthood, a, a people that lives differently in the midst of darkness. And instead, they're already we're seeing hints and evidences that they're just like the people around them. Do you all see this? Other observations. Okay. Okay. 
instead of working together, they seem to be each independently. Okay, okay. Seems to be a little bit of that. There's another there's another phrase that's kind of repeated in there. Did you see? It was repeated a couple times, at least twice. Instead of driving them out, they made them forced labor. But what else did they do? They lived among. And what does that imply? Okay, we're neighbors. We've all moved into Berry Creek, and we're sharing the pool together, and we went to the social Friday night at the Berry Creek Clubhouse and had a glass of wine and visited and talked about Breaking Bad that we saw this week, and so we're living among them, right? Do, do you see what I'm saying? That's, that's what they're doing. I'm becoming like them, and I'm, letting the, I'm just letting them be here. Because what, as, as the, as the storyline, as the narrative unfolds, what else do we find out about them as they are living among and not forcing them out and becoming more like Canaan? Pardon me? They begin worshiping their idols. What would you say, Pat? Yeah, because turn into chapter 2. They start to intermarry. It's complicated when, you, when your sons and your daughters um, intermarry with someone who doesn't worship the same gods that you do, doesn't it? What happens? There's compromise or an influence to worship those other gods. And that's why God was saying, drive them out, drive them out, drive them out. Because if you do these things, if you live among them, if you make covenant with them, if you let your sons and your daughters marry them, you will go down the same road that they have gone down. They will, you will no longer be able to be separate from them. You will become just like them, and you will worship their gods. And so in the beginning of chapter 2, what do we see happening? They're living among. They've intermarried. Now in chapter 2, we have that double introduction. And in chapter 2, now we have God's view. This was Israel's view of what's happening. Now God's stepping in. Angel of the Lord goes up from Gilgal to Bochium, and he has a stinging indictment against them, doesn't he? And what does he say? If you're wanting to know where I am in your homework, if you're thinking, where is that woman? Uh, number four. By the way, did you notice, did you count up how many times did not drive out was used? How many? Twelve, you counted twelve times? Ten? I got nine. I got nine, but I'll take ten or twelve. I, I got nine, but I, I may be wrong as well. A lot. <laughs> Oh, you all are funny. <laughs> Chapter 1 and 2? I don't know. Do you know, JJ? Well, if you were listening. <laughs> Do we ha know how long a time period like Chapter 1 and 2 are? 
Right, right. But that would be all of Joshua. Right. I don't know. What's, and what's the, what's Well, just like what? I can, t- no. I can tell you what, what I, well, what I read the whole period of the judges was around three to 350, but they're not entirely sure because some of them overlap. Is in, and so they can't quite put it together. That makes sense. But just specifically chapter one and two, I have no clue. What the time period is. That's a good question, though, to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the angel of the Lord appears. This is really God speaking through the angel of the Lord, and he issues a stinging indictment. And what does he say? Hey, hang on to that thought. Let's go back. The very end, the very end of chapter one, particularly with the tribe of Dan. What state are they in? We've gone from defeat to didn't drive out to, did you see that descriptive of Dan? Yeah, who was defeating them? The Amorites, because they're up, the Amorites are like, you stay up there in the hill country and you're not coming down here. We've got the plane. So you've gone from conquest down all the way down here to, really a form of defeat, and that Dan is pushed back by the Amorites. And the Amorites are controlling them. So you see how far they have fallen. Now, let's go back to my question in chapter 2. When God issues his stinging indictment, what does he say to them? Well, before that, why is he giving them over, Tony? What does he say they've done? They've broken covenant. So God speaks, Lord speaks. Okay, they have, you have not obeyed my voice. Do you hear his heart too? Do you hear, did you notice that one phrase that to me would be a underline, that's a key phrase? What does he say? What is this you have done? I mean, I just felt God's heart breaking. Maybe I'm reading it wrong, but I I didn't see it as much as a pointing. It is a pointing at them where there's nothing they can do but stand there before him guilty. But I just see his heart breaking. What is this you have done? You have not obeyed my voice. You have, what else have they done? What did I told you? I told you don't do this, and what have you done? Somebody said it earlier. They made covenants. Didn't they make covenants? They didn't obey. They made covenants with the people in the land. What else did they fail to do? They did not break down the altars. 
so they did not destroy the altars of the foreign gods in the land at all. And that's when he says, what is this you have done? So what does he say he will now do? I'm I'm not going to drive them out before you anymore. Oh, worse than that. What does he say? What did he just say? I'm coming against you for harm. Not only am I not driving them out, I'm going to let them be thorns in your side. Oh, and you know what else? Now, I'm against you. So that he becomes God himself. That is the turning of the tables where I am shaking up your reality, Israel, because now your real enemy is me. That's a sobering thought, is it not? Very sobering thought when he says that. The hand, look in verse 15. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. He had sworn to them way back in when he gave the law, particularly when you read Deuteronomy. You obey me, and here's all the blessings that I will give you. You disobey me, and this is what's going to happen. You disobey me, and I will rip you out of that land, and I will let your enemies defeat you, and I will let them take you out of the land. Should they have been surprised at this? Why? Why? No, why, of course not. Mm-hmm. What, did, what did you, look at your number six, what did Deuteronomy 4 say? Did you all look up Deuteronomy 4? Hmm? Well, God is jealous and consuming, and I want, hold that thought, I want to talk about that in a minute, but what does he say? What does he warn them in Deuteronomy 4? What would you say, Phyllis? He warns them about jealous God, but what does he say he's going to do? In 4, 23 through 31. Let's just turn there. Turn there, you all. Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 23. Somebody read it. Somebody with a loud voice, start reading. Keep going.
Okay, stop there. So what did he just say? This was way before this. Hmm? Yeah, I'm going to drive you out. I'm going to, this land, I promise you, if you start making these, these idols, like the people in the land, if you don't do what I tell you, if you do not obey my voice, then here's the warning. Why? Because I am a jealous God. The Lord, your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. What does he mean by that? Say it louder. They shall not have no other gods before me. We tend to think of jealousy as, as a negative trait. But yet God calls himself, I'm a jealous God. So it's not negative because God doesn't sin. So what is he saying? What's he communicating by saying, I am a jealous God? Okay. So Caitlin's saying their gods are nothing. They're fake. They're really an illusion. They're an insult. I am the only true God that there is. I am it, the only one, holy, righteous, just. Okay? What else is he saying? That's right. You're exactly right. But does anybody struggle with that? That descriptive of God? I am a jealous God. Uh-huh. It's like a slap in the face, okay? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, you said the key word there. Did you hear it? Four letters. Love. I am, did you, if you didn't hear Tony, Tony said, I think of it as like uh, with our children. We want the best for our children. We don't want them getting in trouble. We don't want them making poor decisions. We want them to love the Lord. I'm not paraphrasing exactly like you did. And, and I was going to, if you did come out with that word, I was going to say, what's the motivation behind that? The jealously wanting that? It's love. This is God's jealous love, and that one, what, what, what metaphor does he use, particularly in the Old Testament? Those of you all that study the prophets will know exactly what I'm talking about. What metaphor does he use for the relationship of himself with Israel? The, hmm? Father, father, son, but marriage. What does he indict them with? You have whored against me. You have prostituted yourself. You have committed adultery. Because where he, he uses that metaphor of marriage. So it, it, is, it, is a, it is a jealous, loving husband. You're mine. I'm your creator. I want nothing but absolutely 110% the best for you. And I'm willing to give it to you. And this is what you've done? So when it says he is a jealous God, a consuming fire, that jealousy is an expression of his steadfast, faithful love, is what it is. 
And in that steadfast, faithful love, what will he do? And we're going to see it happen throughout Judges. He will chasten, won't he? Tony, isn't that what we do with our kids? All of y'all, isn't that what we do with our kids? They've made poor choices, and because we love them, we set up consequences. We chasten. We do, we, we do whatever discipline is uh, that we feel appropriate for our children so that they learn not to do that because we care so much about them, not because we mean ill will and not because we want to hurt them, but because we want the best for them. Look at the pattern. Look at the pattern up there in number five, in your question five. It's in, in chapter two, starting in verse 11. This is a pattern we're going to see, the cyclical pattern that's going to play out in the book of Judges. What is it? What happens first? Say that louder. He, well, he gives them a can, but what starts the cycle? They did what? They disobey. How, what does he say? He uses some specific words in the scripture. Starting in, yes, and the people of Israel what? They did evil, and what was the evil they have done? They served the Baals. Now, when you think about doing evil, God, I mean, the scriptures define it here. Here, the evil is you have gone and you have served the local Canaanite gods. You have served the Baals. Is that our description of evil? What do we tend to think of when we think of someone doing evil? Killing somebody? Raping them? Burning them alive in a cage like ISIS has done? Abusing a child? Incest? Abusing a helpless animal? Starving someone? Those are evil acts, aren't they? Okay, so that's our definition of evil. What's God's definition of evil? Serving other gods. That should really cut. That should really cut to our hearts right there. And, and sober us a little bit to step back and think, wow, what evil have I committed in my own life? Because we'll talk about that in a minute. Hold that thought. Okay, they do evil in the sight of the Lord, and what is what what happens as a result of their doing evil? What do they provoke? Okay, God, they provoke the anger of the Lord. They provoke His anger because He is a jealous God who loves them and is grieved that they are disobeying. And as a result of that, what does He do? In his anger, what does he send? He gives them over, and what word is even used there? To, he enslaves them. Mm -hmm. But look at that word, to plunderers. 
not one we use every day in our vocab. Okay, what you should be plundering will now plunder you. So I will give you over to these plunderers, and they will oppress you, and they will enslave you, and they will not be nice to you. And so he gives them over, and what you will see played out in Judges is there'll be periods of time that they're under that kind of, of oppression. And then what do they do? Look at the pattern. What do they do? Not really. Not really. They're in distress. Okay. They experience a lot of distress, and in their distress, they cry out. And we'll find out in your homework next week what kind of crying out this really means. And then what happens? No. Why is a judge appointed? God hears them. Yeah. God hears their cry of distress, and he raises up a judge. The judge will provide military victory for a period of time. They'll have some rest. And then it'll start all over again. And you'll see they did evil on the side of the Lord. And God will get angry. And God will, in his anger, send local armies to oppress them, to plunder them, to enslave them. They'll stay that way for a while. It'll get so miserable that they'll cry out to God, God who is a jealous God, a faithful God, a merciful God, a loving God, will hear his people in their distress, even, I'll just give you a hint, even when they're not repentant. And then he will bring a judge to deliver them and give them rest. And it'll keep going, but it'll not only keep going, what you'll see is the spiral gets worse and worse and worse. It's not a perfect circle. It's a spiral downward as Judges continues to unfold. Mm Yes, it is. Yeah. Look what it says um, they, they, um, in verse 12. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who are around them and bowed down to them. They provoked the anger. They abandoned. You know how it says several times? They went after. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. And that's, that's what you see. It kindles God's anger, and he gives them over. Um, what's interesting when you think about this, when you think about them and these other gods, why are they so attracted to them? What is it about the Canaanite way of life, the Canaanite gods that would be in their culture that would prove so irresistible that they'd be willing to do this. 
Because it's easy to it's easy to backseat quarterback and drive and say, hey, what what's wrong with you people? Did you not see the great and mighty acts God has done for you? How could you forget that? How could you um, not want to wholeheartedly serve him when you know his promises are true and faithful and you've seen the mighty acts that he has done? What is so attractive there to them? Okay, so we have a second, we have a problem of a second generation of them not really knowing the mighty acts of the Lord, not having experienced them. Tony? The, the God, the, yeah, the gods were very local, and the, there was no God, none of these gods was demanding complete allegiance. Does that make sense? So you have gods of fertility and gods of rain and gods of the, the earth, and you could um, worship all of them. So why not cover all my bases? And I think what you're going to see is when, when it says, I'm kind of preempting next week's homework a little bit, when it says they forgot God, they don't completely forget him. They just add him on the shelf to all the other gods. Does that make sense? They know who he is. I worship him plus. I'm going to syncretize everything. I'm going to take the best of what I, what my fleshly eye see, the best of all culture has to offer, and I'm going to put them all together, and I'm going to get the best for myself. I'm not giving up God. I'm just adding Phyllis. wants our heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He is the one true living God. These are gods of wood and stone. They're not real. You know, Elijah proves that on Mount Carmel. They are not real. There's no power in them. Whatever power you think they have is a complete illusion. I am the only true living God, your creator, your jealous God, you worship me, and I demand a full-hearted devotion, allegiance, obedience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. There is, there is an element of manipulation. There is. I mean, you, there's the, well, if I, because these gods, what do these gods promise? What do they promise, first of all? Why are they so attractive? What, is, what do idols, and we have, I like what Tony said, it's still there today. We still have idols today. Now, we don't have a bell and an asherah on our mantle at home, but we have, the idols are the same. I wrote it in there. They've just taken on different clothing and different disguises. But the same idols are there. What do idols promise us? 
satisfaction, strength, what? Happiness, prosperity, what I want, self-fulfillment, alleviation from whatever trial is pressing in on me at the moment. This is what they promise to give us. And we fall prey to the lie that, yes, it is going to give me that over and above what God is going to give. Or I'll just mix them together. I'm not giving up God. I'm not, I'm not abandoning or walking away from God, but it's going to be God and. So what are our present-day idols? Our children? Entertainment? Our job? Money? Ambition? Prestige? type of house I live in, my car, moving up the corporate ladder, moving up the ministry ladder. You know, all those things. Yeah, that can even, I mean, that can happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, you name it, and it's still there. It's just taken on a more insidious disguise. Nicole? It's a yeah, go ahead, Diane. Absolutely. And if you don't walk out of here today with anything else, I hope that you see that. One of the greatest moments, and we're out of time, um, of conviction in my life, I, n- I will never forget the moment it just it, it hit me. And there, w- there was someone that, um, it, was a, it was a difficult relationship. And I, I am the type that if, if, it's, if something's not working, it must be my fault. And I've got to work harder. And I've got to work harder. And I've got to work harder. And by golly, I'll stand on my head naked if it will just make this relationship work. Do you know what I mean? And it never occurs to me that maybe they've got a problem. But I remember talking to a friend, and, and I can remember where I was sitting, and it was like all of a sudden I heard God's voice say, you care more about what she thinks and her acceptance than you do mine. And you know what, Nancy? That is an idol, and I want it to go. I want it to go. And can I tell you, when I had that realization, and I said, yes, Lord, I will let that go. It set me free. It really set me free when I realized, wow, that's what I've been doing. I was fooling myself that I'm just trying to do what I can to have peace in a relationship. And instead, it had turned into an idol that I, I wanted that peace. Does that make sense? And God had to just stop me dead in my tracks and hit me up in the face with a two-by-four. 
Anita, and then we have to stop. Uh, that's an excellent book if you all have never read it, Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. You've been dry for God making. Okay, let's um, break. Those of you that wanted a copy of um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, they are here, and they are $12. If you'll just throw your money in that box and take your book and maybe just mark your name off so I know who, who got their book. And let's take a break. Okay, there we go. Boom. Yeah, you're headed way up here. So I'll help you with that next time. Yeah, Steve doesn't know what he's doing. No, I actually, I was wondering when I was back there, I was wondering if you even had it on. So, but no, it's good. We're all good. Everything's fine. Okay, a um, couple of things. Kissimmee, Florida. I wonder who that is. Uh, is it really? I've been to Kissimmee, Kissimmee. That's like redneck Florida. You ever been to there? That's like, it, literally it is. Like I was, I thought I was in Oklahoma, Florida is where I actually thought I was. And uh, I guess Orlando's not too far from that because they wanted to know if I wanted to go to Disney World. And I literally looked at them and said, why would I want to do that? Anyway, uh, I d could not understand why I would ever want to go to Disney World. So I skipped out on that and I just, you know what I did? I just sat and read my Bible. Yeah, probably not. I probably went for a run or something back in the days. Um, what I want to do now is I want to I want to think about is let me point out I do this not because you haven't heard it, but sometimes it is really good for me to go back and uh, to say it over and over and over again. Um, so after looking at a text and after determining what the text means, and as we wrestle with and try to think about then the next level of the text, which is uh, or the next level of the interpretive process. So as you walk through it, it looks something like this. Uh, we need to observe the text, make some observations, try to, try to take a look at it for the first time. That's our goal. What are we trying to do? We're trying to not say, uh, th this is where we get into trouble. I need to prove this. Do you have a Bible? I get this all the time, actually, from people. Um, do you have a Bible verse that proves that I'm right on this issue? Or do you have a Bible verse that I can show my kids how they're wrong on this issue? And I always want to say, I can give you a Bible verse that says what you're asking me right now is wrong. Like that, I mean, I really can. Um, because one of the problems is, is if all we're going to do is go to the Bible to prove what we already believe, then chances are we're not listening to what the Bible is teaching. And that doesn't mean that we reinvent ourselves all the time. It doesn't mean the Bible is going to mean something different. Now that we read this text, let me show you that everything that you know about that text is wrong and here's the new meaning. No, it's actually not that at all. The meaning stays the same, okay? The meaning 
is what the author meant to his audience. That is so critical. So what you and I are doing, what, what we are committed to doing in this class is digging deep and observing the text so that you and I can walk away and say, we know what the author of the Judges, book of Judges, meant by relating this information to his audience. We, we know what he meant. But there is, and, the, and by the way, that there, so we observe the text so that we can then interpret it. Observation, interpretation. So after we're done interpreting the text, now we know what the text means. And I'm going to use that word particularly. We know what the text now means to its original audience by its author, okay? So now that we have done that, now, another level that we need to say, okay, but is that where it stays? Okay, well, I'm glad the Israelites knew that, and uh, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's historically fascinating to see where the Israelites failed, but as Paul says, and let me give you a great text for this, a great text to just look at and to keep going back over is 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul doesn't talk about the judges, but he does talk about the, the wanderness, or the, the, the wanderings in the wilderness, he does talk about that time, and he basically says, hey, Corinthian people, I want you to reflect back on these wilderness wanderings. I want you to think about Israel, and I want you to think about the fact, and notice what he's saying here. I want you to think about the fact that the nation of Israel, in terms of what they were doing, the nation of Israel found themselves wandering in the wilderness. They were baptized. So think of this as like a first Corinthian Christian. They were they were baptized in the Red Sea. They ate of this spiritual food. They drank of this spiritual drink. And then they rebelled against God, and they murmured, and they complained, and they rose, and they committed sexual immorality, and all of them died before they ever made it into the promised land. And then he says, you need to pay attention to that because that could happen to you, right? So he looks back at Israel's history. He doesn't go, here's some really cool facts. He looks back at Israel's history, and what does he say? Listen, they went through their struggle, and we go through ours. This is where they failed, and this is where we might fail. This is what idolatry looks like, looked like. This is what idolatry looks like. This is what sexual immorality looks like and is about. And by the way, this is what it looks like now. Can, can I just share with you something um, that I don't think we talk enough about, okay? Um, and I, I'll, I'll be very careful how I say this because I'm uh, clearly aware of the mixed company that I'm in. Um, but when Paul says that there should be no hint of sexual immorality ar around you, like Paul had no concept of internet pornography. He had no concept of the degree to which a lot of sexual immorality is like in the mind, is in the mind. Now, Paul, now Jesus deals with this, right? I'll be preaching on this in a few weeks. Jesus says, listen, don't be happy about just not committing adultery, but any of you who look upon, right, someone else, let me kind of all open it up to women and men, right? Um, any of you look upon someone else and you lust after them in your heart, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart, okay? Always include in your heart because it's not adultery, it's adultery in your heart, is what Jesus says, okay? so And Jesus says, by the way, that shouldn't be who we are. Do you, you realize, like, that is what a lot of 
13-year-old boys and 13-year-old girls and 16-year-old boys and 16-year-old girls because it's not just a boy problem. You know that? Not just a boy problem. It's one of the newest uh, demographics that are dealing with this temptation are women. Okay? So let's just be aware of this. Um, and so now all of a sudden, when, when, when Paul's talking about don't be sexually immoral, he's meaning more like don't like have affair, don't commit adultery, um, don't go to the temple places and involve yourself with a, that's why he talks a lot about prostitute and prostitution, which was very much a part of their worship, and Paul's saying don't do that. Now, I think Paul would speak to us today. I don't think he'd say, yeah, you know, as long as, as, long as it's just a picture, then it's really not a big deal. He wouldn't say that. He would not say that. But realize just the different temptations that now a 12-year-old boy has to deal with because you've given him one of these. Okay, and he reads the Bible. And what Paul is literally talking about is don't go down to the temple and have sex with a prostitute. And the boy is now translating that picture of sexual immorality with what he is wrestling with in the privacy of his own bedroom with the phone that you bought him. Think about that. Okay, and I'm not asking for a pass at all. If you don't recognize there's a difference, I think you're missing something. No passes. Zero passes. Zero. Okay? We do not sin so that grace may abound. I'm not saying that. But we need to understand the complexity that we have now added to the situation. And by the way, this is why it's good to know that God is bigger than, and his Holy Spirit is bigger than. And I'm grateful that Jesus Christ reminds us that it's not just what we do with our bodies, but it is a, it is a heart issue fundamentally. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Okay? But we need to be able to help our people understand the complexity of what is going through all of this. So when you're reading the judges or when you're reading Paul's material, when you just kind of jump down to the bottom and say, yeah, Paul said sexual immorality, and that includes, hear me, it, it, it really, really does. But we've moved beyond interpretation, and now we're asking that last level and that last level is that application, which I hope you get to, which I hope that you do. I hope you walk away and go, man, I just don't want to know what that text means. I want to know how, I want to know how, that, how that fits into my family. I want to know how that fits with my son who's 17 years old. I want to know how that fits um, with my neighbor who came over the other day and just said, man, can I just share something that I'm struggling with? So this bottom one is, means to me. It is not bad to ask that question. We get into serious, serious trouble when we skip this step and we observe and we jump down here. We, we make serious problems. Okay? We begin, my favorite line that I use is that we begin to write checks that God has never promised to cash for ourselves and other people. When we don't do the hard work of stopping and asking what the text means, and then we say, okay, in light of that, what does the text mean to me? And this is why it's good for us to even to recognize the depth of the biblical narrative. And that's what I get to do second hour, okay? Um, not because it's me, but that's because the way Nancy and I have really kind of designed this is that, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not just doing application. I'm actually kind of walking back through both of these pieces, okay? So I'm not here to just do this. But what, I, what Nancy does is Nancy does interpretation and application in the text, which is helpful. Now what I get to do, or whoever teaches second hour, 
is that we get to come along and say, now let's take a look at what this means and means to me in the Bible, like in the biblical narrative, like in the biblical text, because it's not just 1350 to 1050 that the people of God have, people of God have wrestled with this question, how do we remain covenantally faithful to what God has called us, okay? Uh, I love to say, raise your hand or, you know, let's not do that right now, not because it's bad, but just because let's just skip that. I'm asking, how many of you have made a covenant with God, and this is why it's so critical that we rethink what it means to be a believer. How many of you have made a covenant with God? Typically, okay, we've created some problems historically, typically sealed covenantally through baptism. Okay, there's a sealing there. Uh, there's a clothing that happens, that's at least the way Paul sees it in Romans and um, in the book of Acts. So you've made a covenant relationship with God, and you've gone through all of that, um, and now you're living in light of the covenant of grace of what Jesus Christ has done for you and have struggled and have not, have not kept up your end of the bargain, so to speak. Anybody done that? Yeah, I've done that. I've, 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 I've been, I guess, like the judges, I guess, is kind of what I'm, what I'm thinking. I'm just like the judges. I'm, I, I, or not the judges. I'm like the, the, the people during the time of the judges. Like, I wrestle with those things. I struggle with those things. Um, and, and, and what I want to spend some time doing today, it actually, I leaned over and I said, when uh, you mentioned the Romans 1 text, I leaned over and I said, that's creepy. And it really isn't creepy. It's the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, it's beautiful, because that's one of the places I want to go today. I, I want to talk about Romans 1, and I want to see what's going on in Romans 1. And what I want to do is I want to I begin, um, let me pull up on my phone here. Give me one second. So, as I look at Okay, turn to Judges 2 is where we'll begin. Um, any, any thoughts? You know, I kind of fly through this, and I've been recently through an experience where I've been, become even more committed to stop and to reflect. Um, it's been fun, church on Sunday, stopping and reflecting. I don't know what you, you, I don't know if anybody in here has written me a note, but I've had lots of notes from people thanking me. And I'm like, well, sure, I'll, I'll tell the Holy Spirit that you appreciate me being faithful to him. Because <laughs> I really felt it was him saying, hey, we need to just, we need to stop and we need to do this. We need to stop and we need to think through this. We need to spend some time doing that. So let's not rush through this. Let's ask, any, any thoughts about this? Any, I, I know you've probably heard this. I, I mean, anybody that's been around Nancy and I in this class or even on a lot of the stuff that we do at Wednesday night, you've heard me talk about it. observe, interpret, apply. Observe, interpret, observe, interpret, apply. Don't get these steps mixed up. Any, any thoughts, any obstacles that we may not answer right now, but it's a good time to at least write them down so that we can go back and answer them? Yeah. Now, what do you mean by lost? What do you mean like we get lost? Okay. 
Yeah, that's why it's good to that's why it's good to even slow down in moments like this and say, okay, like let's not just read through judges. I mean, I promise we'll still be done at the same time, but let's not just fly through judges and miss the point that there is a covenant that you have made with God, right? And you've got a responsibility. I agree. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And and this is why I'll speak for myself. This is why I'm not a fan at all at all of, uh, and, and by the way, I'm a, I am a fan of actually reading the Bible quickly sometimes. I'm a big fan of just spending 20 minutes in the Word and just flying through Philippians 2. I am. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of this, actually, of just spending 20 minutes in Philippians 2 and just appreciating at the, at the highest level. I, I, surface is not bad, right? Like, literally, Andrew and I do, like, a surface kiss every morning. Love you, babe. Surface kiss, right? Um, it's healthy for us, actually. Like, surface kissing is wonderful, right? Do I get a lot out of it? No, I really don't at all. It's not my favorite kind of kissing, right? But it's, it, but it's a sign, right, that something my, my wife actually really, when she says, I really need you to, she said to me the other day, because we, got, we, got, we have certain rituals, I try to make her coffee every morning. Um, and uh, I, I went through this. I, I would get up, like, at stupid hours. Uh, I still do sometimes. And so I thought, oh, she probably doesn't want me to bother her. So she said to me a few weeks ago, like, I really need you to kiss me goodbye. I'm like, but, honey, sometimes it's, like, you know, 4.30 in the morning. Sometimes it's, like, 5 o'clock in the morning. Like, you really, yes, I want you to. Okay, but you don't like it when I wake you up. It's different. Oh, women. And so I've started doing it. And you know what she says to me every time? She says to me every time out of a sleep that she does not like to be woken from, thank you. Have a great day. She does. Right? Kiss her right on the cheek. And that's, and I, I'm telling you, there's something about reading the Bible like that that's helpful. Now, all of that being said, if that's all you ever do, you really don't get the Bible. And I think that becomes a little bit of the problem, is that all we ever know of is that surface level. Like that is as intimate as we ever get. And then we wonder why, like, our, our love for God is not coming alive. Our love for God is not growing. And it's because at that 20 minutes, okay, Philippians 2, how can I be like Jesus? Okay, which is great. It's only 20 minutes. Great. Just spend 20 minutes kind of flying through it. Great. Awesome. You go, live, go live your day. And then the next day, you do the same thing for Philippians 3. And the next day, you do the same thing for Philippians 4. And then the next day, you do the same thing for Colossians. And the next day, you do the same thing. And you never actually go beyond that. Then you don't ultimately get it. And one of the reasons why I love the Judges is because I've spent extra time in the Judges. And one of the reasons why I love the Book of Romans now is because I've spent extra time in the Book of Romans. And I can actually do surface stuff in Romans and surface stuff in, in Genesis and surface stuff in Matthew because I've done hard stuff in those places. Does that make sense? Like I've got an invested relationship. And so I can give Romans 6 a quick kiss. Love you, babe. Right? Because why? Because I've got a relationship 
with Jesus Christ through Romans 6. Does that make sense? And that's what Nancy is, 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 is describing, and I really want to challenge you to do that. I really want to challenge you. It's not one or the other. It's truly recognizing the value and the beauty of both. Both actually, I think, matter to us, or should matter to us, but it's the skip. I do agree. We skip through both of these, and then we just hit this, and that's what we cannot do. So here's what I want to do today. Is as, we, as we look through this, um, I, w- I want you to we'll, we'll begin in, in Judges 2, and I want to kind of read through it, and I want to kind of jump on some spots. Here is the overarching thesis for me to give to you today. Um, I have spent a lot of time in my ministry telling people about, reminding people of their covenant with God and reminding them of their failures. And I've probably never been, never been wrong in what I've said. And sometimes I had a good attitude about it. Sometimes I didn't have a good attitude about it. But it's not about saying the right thing. And let me even tell you this. It's not even about having the right attitude about it. Sometimes we're, we're, now, we're now more than happy with people as long as their intentions are good. Right? And I think that's equally as dangerous. So step number one. Say the right thing. Step number two, make sure you say it in the right way, right? For a lot of people, it's about tone, okay? I'm, I'm with you. We, we can't say it any way that we want. But is there anything else? And here's that next level which I want to talk about is, but you do know that there actually is more to be said. So let me remind you about your covenant with God, if you've made one. Like, you failed, haven't you? Like, you have bailed, you have followed, fall down, fell down, You've worshipped at the Baals. You've been like the judges. You've been like the Israelites in terms of how they rebelled against God, and you shouldn't do that. You really should stop doing that, okay? And I hope you feel bad for doing that. Like, I really do. I I hope you feel guilty for doing that. I hope you feel like an irresponsibility, a covenantal unfaithfulness for doing that. And let's pretend I said that the way you needed to hear it, okay? Some, actually, by the way, some people like it to be strong, and some people like it to be soft. So it's, that's a complicated part when you speak to more than one person, right? Speaking more than one person, chances are you've got two different ways that want to be spoken to. Let's remember that. So as I tell you that, and all, but now this is that bottom level is, but that's not all that needs to be said. That's really not that all that needs to be said, like, what, what's wrong with us as preachers and leaders and parents is that we say the truth, you've failed. We say the truth, you've covenantally failed. And then we, 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 we kind of even might even want to add something like, I love you anyway. I love you anyway, which is a wonderful thing for parents to say to their kids, and they should say that to their kids. But I want you to notice, like, as we continue through the Judges, that Judges 2 gives us this incredible picture of what God is describing and what God is doing in spite of our failures, in spite of our brokenness. That the rest of the story is not, and you'll get another day to do well. Because how many of you have been given another day and you're so grateful for another day and then you blow that day too? Anybody else? Right? And then you go, yeah, but I get another day. And how many of you have blown weeks, months? How many of you have wasted years? Okay? So now what do we do? And think about it this way. I mean, this is why it was kind of a good, some of the, some of the things that you brought about, I thought, wow, that's, that'll fit, that'll fit. 
300-ish years of not getting it right. I mean, it's even hard to explain. Why don't we just wait here for 300 years so we can get a feeling of what that would be like? I mean, think about that. How about if we just wait for 300 years so that you know what that feels like? Anybody know what 300 years feels like? 47 feels like eternity to me, right? And I'm I'm one-sixth of the way through the 300 years of Israel's failure. Think about that. So then what do we do with that? And here is what God says in Judges 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt. Now, these are important things for you to take a look at. So when this happened, when we're looking at the narrative, realize what what the writers are doing, what do they draw people back to? And we're in a huge part of the Bible where what God draws people back to is this period in their history when God was doing great things, okay? When God was, and he keeps going back to it. So why should I be nice to my, uh, to my maidservant and to my manservant? Why should I feed the poor? And you know what the biblical answer is? Because I brought you up out of Egypt, that's why. I brought you up out of Egypt. And that's why one of my favorite stories in the Bible, you've all heard me talk about it, one of my favorite stories of the Bible is when God said, hey, whatever you do, for those of you that have farms, when you gather up your crops, do not go over it a second time. You gather up as much wheat and as much barley, as much whatever, and then you leave the edges. You leave the edges, and you leave what just happens to fall by the wayside. You leave that. Why? And you know what the answer is? Because I'm the Lord your God that brought you up out of Egypt. And you go, okay, well, how does that connect? Here's how it connects. Is that God wants people to consider how they are living in light of who he is and what he has done for them. That's why, what does Jesus teach? That you who have been forgiven, if you cannot forgive, then you will not be forgiven. Does that fit? Because why? I'm the Lord your God that brought you up out of Egypt. Like I looked at your misery, I looked at your brokenness, and I reached down and I healed you and I brought you up and now you're going to make sure you get every last piece of barley from your field? And for those people who need help and need to be cared for, and you're going to kind of say, well, that's your fault. I pulled myself up by my own. No, you didn't pull yourself up by your own. I pulled you up out of Egypt. I was the one that delivered you. And how dare you forget my faithfulness? Well, no, 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 God, I, I thank you for that on Sunday. Yeah, I know, but you didn't live in that faithfulness the rest of the week. So what God is doing at the very beginning of this narrative is he's saying, I want you to remember very specifically and strategically what I have done for you, okay? Step one, I brought you up out of Egypt and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers, going back to the Abrahamic promise. I said, I will never, this is key, this is key right here, I will never break my covenant with you. Okay? So what we see in this covenantal relationship is that you have God with us. Okay? And so you have God's promise to us. And this covenant here, I don't know how to kind of maybe just make it like really thick or something. I don't know. God's powerful covenant with us.
cannot be broken. Okay? Now, before we just go, awesome, isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful that God would never? Oh, no, 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 no. I guess let me explain to you the covenant. Okay? And, and by the way, if I'm wrong at any time, stop me. I swear to you. If I'm wrong, if I say anything that's inappropriate or wrong, please stop me. But God's covenantal promise was, if you obey, I will bless. And if you disobey, I will curse. Correct? I hear people talk about this, and God is always faithful, and so it doesn't matter what you do. Kind of, right? Kind of. <laughs> I get what you're saying. But it really does matter what you do. Like God's not just some guy. I, ha I had a person even say to me today, I had someone say to me, man, they're my daughter, and so I have this unconditional love for them. I don't know if I agree with your definition of unconditional. Right? I, I do believe I have an unconditional love for my kids. But that unconditional love can not to, the, to them sometimes doesn't really look like love. But that's okay. They're children. Like I, I need to help them understand the fullness of that. And so when we talk, and by the way, this bond of blessing and cursing is perfect, is, is nailed. It, it is ab God is always going to be faithful to this. Okay? So I want you to think about that. That's what God says. I brought you up out of Egypt. I was the one that remembered my promise to Abraham. That's how it's described in Exodus. And so I brought you up out, and I said I would give you a land. And look, here it is. Look at the land. You're now in the land. And then the next half of this particular narrative is going to describe the response. And what does he say? So I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altar. So at, at kind of at the very core of this, the covenantal relationship is actually one that stems from worship. We, we forget this. It's not just an ethic apart from who God is. It is an ethic that is derived directly from who God is. And the problem with Israel is not that they have sex outside of marriage, and it's not that they sometimes say bad words, and it's not sometimes that they're mean or that they're unkind or that they're greedy. The problem with Israel is that they worship things other than God. And we've got to remember that is the problem. And people who worship things other than God then begin to have inappropriate relationships and do all of these different things. And it becomes the, if anything, it becomes the fruit from the tree which is already corrupted. Now, as he just goes on to describe this, I'll never break my covenant with you. You need to break down their altars. And then look at the next part of this verse. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? And is this the first time Israel's failed? No. Who, who failed, by the way? And I mean, the answer so far is everybody. Everybody. Okay? Which means that, to the best of my ability to describe it, it looks something like that, doesn't it? I am always nailing it. You guys are about as predictable as unpredictable things, right? You are so unpredictable. But I am, I am this. I am, I am so this. And this is the picture that I want you to have in the judges. It's not, see, this is the problem, is that we as parents and as preachers and as teachers, 
either preach this, which really isn't this, right? Actually, it's more like we don't do this or this, right? Basically, all we have is try to be good and God will bless you, and I think that's it. I can't think of anything else. He'll always do that because he's so good. That's not biblical, okay? The other thing that we love to do is we love to talk about kind of like this, brokenness, and now I'm going to harangue you. I'm going to just harass you with it. I'm going to just beat you down with it, right? And my answer to fixing this is by just reminding you how bad you are, reminding you how bad you've been, reminding you of your faithlessness, okay? But even notice, so far, even just think through this. Like, how has the narrative come to us? Hey, God, you failed, or hey, guys, you failed again. No, how does it begin? I'm the Lord your God. Who, by the way, brought you up out of Egypt. Like, I'm the one that has cared for you. I'm the one, and by the way, I will never break my covenant to you. That's how he begins. I will never break my covenant with you. And this is what it looked like. Okay, now that's the most important thing. Now let's move on to something that's not as important as that, but is related to that, and that is that you have failed. And you failed time and time and time again. And at the core of this is that you have failed to worship me for who I am, and you have bowed down. You have decided to worship other things. This is why uh, the, uh, the idolatry language is adulterous in its description. Okay, that's a good thing for you to remember. Idolatry language is described in uh, adultery uh, metaphors, Okay. So as he continues, he describes this, but you have not obeyed my voice. What what is it that you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns. I talked about that last week. Thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, now this is the part that's amazing to me, and all of the people lifted up their voices and wept. Uh, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Which is, is really kind of a weird, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm, I, I got to be careful, because as a preacher, I was almost trained to read things into things. And I, I don't know if I should or not on this one. Um, usually in the narratives in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and in Joshua and in, even in even in the narrative sections of Numbers and Exodus, you really have to watch when people weep but then don't do what they should do, right? But in this text, you have a sacrifice, and yet you also have like a weeping. And so I don't know what to do with, say, 2 Corinthians uh, 7 on this material on that there is a repentance that doesn't lead to a changed life. It's just sorrow, right, which is one of my favorite ideas, favorite texts. Um, and then there is a repentance that leads to a changed life. It appears most that what the writer here is describing is an awareness of our brokenness with a sadness. What's for lunch? Does that make sense? I, I don't know if I want to throw that all on them. I'll, I'll be honest with you. As I look through this, it seems to be, as I look at the theme of the book, there is a, like a like a sadness, like, oh, I can't believe we're that way. Oh, I hate being fat. I really, oh, I really want a hamburger. <laughs> right? I've been there. So I'm really frustrated with the way things are. Oh, I just hate this about me. <sighs> I'm so bored. I think I'm going to go shopping. 
right? And we just, we stay in the cycle, right? And I want you to see there's a little bit of this that exists here. Now, but, now by the way, it's, so what's the plan? And here is, here, are you ready for this? Here's the plan. God is telling them, I will be faithful to my covenant. To my covenant to Abraham. I want you to hear that. I will be faithful to my covenant. And by the way, what will you be? Oh, you'll be faithful. You okay with that? Like, how, do, how do you feel about that? Because that's really what the book of Judges is about. God will be faithful, and we will be faithful. Okay, well, how, then how do we ever achieve what God has for us? Are you, Jim, are you hinting at all that we should sin so that grace may abound? And my answer to you is no. In the words of Paul, meganoitoi, which is Greek for may it never be. May it never come to pass. But Paul, listen to this, Paul had to say what people were thinking. The way you are describing grace and the way you are describing God's covenant faithfulness makes me wonder whether or not I should sin so that grace might increase. Hear, hear me. Did you hear what I said? Paul described it in such a way that the Roman Christians weren't crazy if they were to go, boy, the way you just described God's grace, it made me wonder, just for a second, I know it sounds crazy, but then if this is how loving and gracious and faithful our God is, then why don't we just sin? Like, Paul preached grace like that. Paul preached God's covenant faithfulness like that, that that question had to be asked. Think about that for a moment. I have never come to grips with something I was told by my mentor. He said to me, if you preach grace and you somehow feel like you haven't just said something that was so deep and something so offensive to you, then maybe you haven't preached it fully. God's grace really does leave, if you think about it, the story of the prodigal, the great stories of God's faithfulness, the great stories of God's grace, they kind of leave us feeling like this isn't right. Have you you felt like that with God's grace? Like this isn't right. This isn't fair. This isn't the way it should be. If you've encountered these stories and somehow you want to stick it to them a little more, I mean, you do realize there can be a real danger in just kind of reveling in your own sin. I mean, I hear people say this all the time, and I'm I'm thinking through what it means. I've not really had this problem for complicated reasons. I've never really struggled with, like, has God forgiven me? I've never, whatever, I I, I could think I could give you a couple of reasons why, but um, I've never really really struggled with that, right? I've wondered. But I've never really, but I meet people all the time. I'd say more than half of the people I meet with, they just can't get over that. They just get stuck right here. And they just can't fathom what the fullness of this is. Or they just hear this. Right? They just hear this. This, this, by the way, is a bad way of preaching too. This is not the gospel. This, actually, by the way, is still the gospel. God's covenantal faithfulness to us. And so the story of Judges is, and this is what I want you to think through. Well, here's what we've said. I've got to get to Romans 1 really quick here. Here's what God says. I will be perfect 
in my covenant faithfulness to you. You obey, I bless. You disobey, I curse. And then what does he say at the back half of it? And by the way, I'm going to leave you in this. I'm going to genuinely leave you in this. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to drive them out for you. I asked you to drive them out. You decided to not drive them out. So I'm, 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 I'm removing myself from this. This is now yours. And by the way, they will be a snare to you. But what has not happened because of what is being described here is, so did, then Yahweh, did you abandon your people? And the answer is what? No. Now I'm using, and that's why I kind of felt like I had to preach last week on thorns because I know I'd have to do this this week, is that the thorns now become part of the means through which God, I talked about that a little bit from the Ezekiel text, the means through which God now is covenantally faithful to his people. Like, I want, I want you to think through this, is that sometimes when we look at what God is doing and what God has done, that we only look at this wonderful, redemptive, restorative situation where everything works out and where enemies are defeated and where victory is won. And if, the, if you don't, aren't experiencing the victory you should experience, it's because you haven't claimed it and you need to claim it. That is so unbiblical. That is just nuts. It is nuts. I mean, because I, I just, tell, tell me this. Who claimed victory and then did not have adversity in the Bible? Give me the name of that person. Jesus didn't live in victory because he died on a cross. Paul didn't live in victory because everywhere he went, the Holy Spirit promised him that prison and hardships await. Paul's call was in the Holy Spirit said to him, and I will show, it says this to, to uh, Ananias, and I will show this man how much he must suffer for my name. That's the gospel. Right? Because that's the world that we live in. Why? Because God is in the process of being perfectly covenantally faithful as we are covenantally faithless. And at times, and this is what the book of Judges does, is God is so redemptive at pulling away sometimes. Not abandoning. Can I just, I want to kind of draw a line. I am not saying abandoning completely. I'm saying pulling away. Right? And I, I hate it when that happens. And, and, and I bet you, have you ever had an experience in your life where you felt like God has pulled away? Right? And I know, listen, I get it. I get it. I so get it. Right now, I just found out Max has one more medical problem, which is exactly what we were hoping for. And so I understand the depth of, are you serious? Are you serious? And I come home from a great retreat to a crying wife who's trying to deal with a Luke Carpenter who hurt himself and a Max, and she's crying. And I'm like, no, honey, wait a second. I had a great spiritual experience this weekend, and I want to share it with you. Go ahead. <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about? By the way, you really ministered to her this weekend, too, by the way. So I, I, get, I get this, and I, and I want to just feel like, like, God, where are you? And we talk about abandonment, Right? And, and, and by the way, I, I, would even, I would even caution you right now. Be very, very careful looking for these crazy one-to-one correlations and these one-to-one scenarios in your life. I really would be. If the Holy Spirit isn't making it clearly known, try to not find weird moments of God under every little rock in your life. Okay? By the, 
I'm also saying don't reflect on it, but don't make conclusions. Let me just caution you about making dumb conclusions about why bad things are happening or why there are thorns or why there are struggles. It is far deeper. Job and his friends, I just finished Job recently in my daily Bible reading. Job and his friends, number one problem with God, as Job says in chapters 41 and 42, Job basically says is that I have spoken without wisdom. Job and his friends got into a big debate about what was going on, and the problem was they didn't have the right information because the Lord didn't reveal it to them. And so they, they sounded like fools, even though, by the way, they said some pretty cool stuff. But they were fools. Because why? Because they didn't have God's divine revelation. So as I'm saying this, and I'm, as I'm kind of trying to help you see that part of God's redemptive, perfect, covenantal plan is not abandoning, but it is sometimes withdrawing. And I don't want you to think, God has left me. That God has completely abandoned me. But what we actually do see in Romans 1 is a very fascinating dynamic where God says to a group of people, um, you have decided, you've, you've known what is true, you've seen the reality of the invisible God, and you know that I am real and that I am true. But what you've decided to do is you've decided to chase created things instead of worshiping the creator. And so God says in this picture, that Paul is, is the prophet, that what I've done is I have handed them over to that. I've handed them over to that so that they might become, and there's a lot of like in order that's in the, in the text, purpose clauses in the Greek, that really are describing that like part of what God does is he hands us over to the things that we think we need and the things that we think we want. And God's going, I'm trying to teach you in all of these things. Now, in Romans 1, it's pretty harsh. It doesn't seem to be he's doing that to Christian people. So be careful using Romans 1 and putting your name there, unless you're an unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever, then Romans 1 probably fits more with you. But I want you to just kind of catch this judge's motif, which you're going to see throughout. I want you to see this in the book of Romans, um, that what God does to the unbeliever and even to the struggling believer is that God says, I'm going to let you stay in this. And for what purpose? For what purpose? So that you might see, that you might see, so I'm talking about the believer now, so that you might see just how covenantally faithful God is. So that you might be aware and see his hand, not just in the immediacy of the moment. One of my favorite things to try to remind Christian people on a regular basis is that you might not be able to see God right now in exactly how this is working out. And it might feel like he has abandoned and has gone far, far away from you. You might even wonder why. All normal things. If you are a child of God, I want you to remember the words of Paul to Timothy. When we are faithless, he is not faithless, for he will always be faithful because he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. And so what we see in the book of Judges is this very real, very tangible promise of God that he will be the one who will be sovereignly watching over us who at times even gives us what we want when it causes inside of us even some struggles and some difficulties. But do not lose sight of God's ultimate or sovereign hand in your life. Do not lose sight of the fact 
that even in some of the most difficult situations filled with thorns, do not lose sight of the fact that he is still the one who brought you up out of Egypt. And in spite of all that you got wrong, God is still going to get it right. Now here's, here's the, my final word. And he's going to get it right in you. Like he'll get it right in you. And you will have, as you stay covenantally faithless in this context of a God who is more faithful than you, that you will find ultimately a deeper resolution. That, wow, I'm really in this covenant, not because of what I did, but because of what he did. Have you come to that grips yet? Like you're not in this covenant with God because of what you did, but what he did. And what is sustaining you is not you figuring it out, but him being consistent with you. So as much as I want you to endure, the Bible talks about that, and to persevere, and to pursue holiness, and all of those things are absolutely critical. The judges comes to us and says, but by the way, more than that, remember the one who endured for you. Remember the one who persevered for you. And remember the one who called you. Understand? No, you don't. None of us do. But we're going to try anyway, aren't we? Let me pray. Well, God, we thank you for this, your call upon our lives and your faithfulness to us. The fact that the people of Israel didn't get it and they just wept. And then sacrifice to you. Um, I do that a lot. And other times you'll see that uh, they, they, they were so faithful to you that they did tear down the altar. Like we'll, we'll see that. Um, and, and God, those were good things that they should have done. But it just took a matter of weeks or months or maybe even years when the altars went right back up. That is such a good picture of my life. And yet, Father, you remain faithful through all of it. And so, God, may we be rightly convicted, and may we never sin so that your grace may abound. But, God, in the midst of our brokenness, may we never quit. May we never believe for a moment that you have abandoned us. You are a loving Father who disciplines us, who, who does things with things that we can't understand or even fathom. Forgive us from a very simple, reductionistic, formulaic, Thank you, God, for a very real and vibrant and trusting life. It's in Christ's name we have to live in this. It's the only way by which we can live in this. We give you thanks. Amen.